You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Starting in verse 24, it says, And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not, know any, did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. I want to say a big happy Mother's Day to all the moms. What a wonderful gift the Lord's given you, and you're a great gift to us. We're glad that you're here. Hopefully, you can take pictures with your family if you brought your family, if they're here with you uh, out by the, the front there. Um, my name's Court, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I want to welcome you to Providence. If it is your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. I don't typically sound like Barry Manilow, but I'm not feeling well. And so voice got a little bit deeper, you know, makes me feel a little more masculine. So that's a good thing on Mother's Day. Okay. Um, We're continuing our work through the book of Mark. And uh, before I pray, I just want to kind of set the stage and give you a little bit of of a heads up. We only have a handful of verses here, but we are going to have to do a lot of work in the Old Testament this morning. And so we're going to have a lot of scriptures are going to be put up behind me. And we're going to try to work through that. If you can't go there fast enough, because I'm going to have to try to set the stage and, and work as quickly as I can to get uh, towards the end where I think the heart of the passage is. You can always just jot the, the verses down. You can check them out later. But I know the team uh, up in the booth is going to try to put them up as quickly as we can. So I just want to give you fair warning, and I want to jump right in because we do have a lot to get through, even though it's only a handful of verses. But first, I'd love to pray for us and ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll do that. Father, thank you for giving us the great opportunity, the great privilege to be able to worship you in spirit and in truth and to come before your word, this gift that you've given and preserved for thousands of years. And now we get to open it and read it to understand you, to know you. And we do ask that you would move on our hearts so that we might receive the gift that your word is to us and that it would produce the 30, the 60, the 100-fold harvest that you've promised. Thank you for the mothers in the room, both current mothers and mothers-to-be. I pray, my God, that you'd minister to them through your word this morning uniquely and that they would be encouraged in the role that you've given them and that they would leave out of here with a full heart. And lastly, my Lord, for each and every person under the sound of my voice, I do pray that you, because you know us more than we know ourselves, that you would meet our needs this morning. And perhaps we have many desires. Perhaps there are some of our desires that align with your will. We ask, my God, would you meet those as well? And so we trust you and we ask all these things in Jesus' good name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so this passage, uh, verses 24 through 30, tells the story of Jesus making his way into Tyre and Sidon and a Syrophoenician woman. I'm going to spend most of my time referring to her as the Canaanite woman. And I do that because 
in, in the book of Matthew, the, rec- the record of this passage calls her a Canaanite woman. And I, I'm just really quickly, I'll tell you why there's uh, this discrepancy. It's not really a discrepancy. This would be uh, as though someone, let's say, moved from another country, let's say, uh, moved from England to the United States. And they would be English by birth, but they might call them the American woman or the American man because they live in the region of America and therefore they're American now, they're citizen here. But by birth, they're from another country. This woman is Syrophoenician by birth, but she lives in the Canaanite region. Now, the reason that this is important is because, and why would the Bible record this? The Bible records this because it wants us to know that whatever happens in this passage has to do with an ancient culture, the Canaanites, and this region of the world. And so we're going to spend some time talking about that. But what happens here, I don't want it to be lost on us. We'll come back to it at the end, but it's, it's absolutely amazing. It's astounding. This woman shows up. She's pleading to see Jesus. Her daughter is demonized or by an unclean spirit that's taken over this young girl. And she's begging that the Lord Jesus would heal her. And Jesus has a conversation with her, which is where we're going to spend the majority of our time. But the result of this conversation is that this demon is cast out of this little girl. And Jesus doesn't touch this young girl. He never sees this young girl. He never even gets close to this young girl. He just says, the demon's gone. She goes home, however far that may be. And the demon's gone. The little girl's just laying in bed. It's unbelievable. To this point, what we've seen is Jesus do things like lay his hands on people. We've seen Jesus speak to the demons in proximity. And here we see that Jesus, just in his authority, says, done. And it's done. Now, this, of course, underscores this power and authority motif we've been working through this entire time in the book of Mark. But there's a part of this story that gains a lot of ire from, I think, definitely non-Christians and maybe even some Christians, and you probably picked up on it, and that is, if you're a woman in the room, you definitely picked up on it immediately. Why is it that Jesus calls this woman a dog? Were you catching that? You also probably thought, why is this the Mother's Day text? (laughs) Where is he going with this, you know? (laughs) And I want to spend some time here this morning, and not because I'm just really interested in picking a fight. I want to spend time here Not merely because I want to defend Jesus, how could I presume to do so? He's well capable of doing that himself, but because I'm convinced that by answering this question, this interaction that Jesus has with this woman, we get to the heart of the passage itself, what the passage is actually communicating. So I have two major points to make on this front before we try to wrap up to what does it mean for us, but the first one is very short and the second one's going to take us a lot longer. The first one is this. The Bible does not share our modern sentiment about being offensive. So you have to catch that right off the bat. Christianity will be tough if you think that the biblical narrative, that the religion of Christianity actually shares your thoughts on offensiveness. And I want to give you an example of what I mean by this. We live in a time where offensive words to some are more uh, dangerous than offensive actions. To be offended in some, in some circles would be more hideous than a crime like burglary, you know, or, or hurting someone or assault. But the Bible doesn't have any moral grounding in that sentiment. The scriptures do call us to be prudent in speech. Jesus even says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So I'm not saying Christianity says that you can just say whatever you want. You don't have to care about anyone. No. James tells us the power of life and death is in, is in the tongue. So there's a severity to speech in the Christian ethic. However, the most important question about speech in the scripture is not whether it offends us or not, but whether it's true or not. That's what Christianity holds as the highest value. Not whether it offends us, but whether it be true. 
And then second, secondarily, the intent of the speech that is true, is it to bring us closer to God and his truth, or is it to masquerade, lead us away, deceive us? Those are the big questions. I want to give you a quick example. This is just, it's kind of funny, unless you're easily offended, in which case I apologize ahead of time. But I want to read this from Titus chapter 1. This is Paul, Titus chapter 1, verses 12. Listen to how Paul speaks about an entire group of people. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their very own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now listen to this next line. This testimony is true. Now, if you're a Cretan, don't you think, like we even have that as a pejorative now in our culture. You call someone a Cretan, you know what you mean. Like, man, don't call me a Cretan. This is why. And Paul says, hey, one of a prophet of their own said some really bad things about these people. And then he doesn't say, it's really harsh, it's really offensive, they should really be ashamed. He says, now this is true about them. And then he says, therefore rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. So he says, this is true, so what? So you need to rebuke them and we want them to come along. We want them to be in the fold. So the question we have to ask about Jesus' terms here is whether it is justified by the truth for him to make such an, a difficult call by calling this woman a dog. Now remember, not whether or not it may have been offensive because my guess is that it was offensive. And secondarily, what's the aim of Jesus' words? Now in order for us to do this, this is where we get into some Old Testament work. So let's start with where Jesus is. The Bible records that Jesus goes to Tyre and Sidon and that he's trying to hide away in these cities, but he cannot be hidden. He wants a break and he can't catch a break. He wants to hide away, away from the children of Israel so that he can get with his disciples, eat some food, take some rest. And this woman, who's a Canaanite woman or a Syrophoenician woman, comes and is just adamant about getting the healing that she needs for her daughter. Can't be hidden away. He's located by this woman and the geographical decisions that Jesus makes are never arbitrary. You have to see this. And I think I've said this a number of times, but just in the same way that Jesus' interactions with people are never arbitrary. For instance, I'm going to go around the long way to Jericho. Why? So I can meet uh, Nicodemus or, or I can meet, uh, you know, the, the tiny man. <laughs> um, this, is how he, this is how he operates. What do we know about Tyre and Sidon, however? What do we know about these two cities? Well, if you remember in your Old Testament, the book of Genesis says that after the Noah's Ark experience, he has three different sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth. And that there's an, there's an incident that happens where Noah has too much of the wine that he got from the grape vineyard, and he is naked in his tent, and his son Ham comes in, and he uncovers his father's nakedness by mocking his father, and the other two sons walk backwards into the tent and cover their father's nakedness. Noah wakes up. And he says this in Genesis chapter number nine, this is verses 24 through 27. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son, what his youngest son had done to him, he said, now remember his youngest son is Ham, cursed be Canaan, servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, that's the oldest, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So there's this curse that is given and it's not on Ham, but it's on his son, Ham's son, Canaan. And it's from Canaan that we get what? The Canaanite peoples. The Bible records this. Every time you hear about the Canaanites, you're hearing about this man who went out and built out his whole civilization. Okay. Now, 
it goes on to tell us that Canaan had a son. Let's go Genesis chapter 10, verses 15 through 18. Canaan fathered, look at this word, Sidon. Okay, his firstborn in Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gergeshites, the Hivites, the Archites, the Sinites, the Aravites, the Zemorites, the Hamathites, afterward the clans of the Canaanites dispersed. This is the whole group of people that later on in the Old Testament we are going to see Joshua engage in the conquest of Canaan with. But it all starts with Canaan who fathered the leader of this city, Sidon. Sidon and Tyre are twin cities. These, they're right next to each other, like 12 miles apart. Now, God promises only a handful of chapters later in the book of Genesis 15 that, that the people of Israel, Abraham's descendants, would dispossess the Canaanite descendants. 400 years later, this happens. But God promised it to Abraham 400 years before. He said, listen, Ham is going to have a son, Canaan. Canaan's going to go over there. He's going to build a whole civilization. And then your children are going to go dispossess. That's my promised land to you. That's the promise. The book of Joshua records that the children of Israel take up this great conquest. You guys remember this story, right? It's after Moses dies. Joshua goes in and starting with Jericho, they begin to take over the land of the Canaanites. But they're stopped short in their campaign. The book of Judges records they do not drive out all of the inhabitants, but they choose to settle instead. The Bible specifically records that the cities of Tyre and Sidon are fortified and therefore they do not go to fight with them. They leave them unclaimed and this would become a grave sin that Israel did not obey God and it would affect them for generations. The book of Judges chapter 2 says this. This is after Joshua's death. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochim and he said, I brought you up from Egypt and I brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but you shall become, or they shall become thorns in your sides. Now, if you've read Genesis, you should think thorns, you should think curse, right? These people are going to be like a curse to you. Their gods shall be a snare to you. That's a trap. And as soon as the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the people of Israel, the people lifted up their voices and wept. They knew they had made a grave mistake. Now, the rest of Israel's history in our Old Testament is a story of them slipping into idolatry, this kind of idolatry. And they're tempted by the nations that surround them. Okay? We have to understand this. One of the most infamous stories of Israel's slide into idolatry will bring us back to Sidon itself, the place that Jesus is reclining at table when the woman shows up. First Kings chapter 16, this is much later after the separation of the kingdom after Solomon's death. First Kings 16 says, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. Now that should sound confusing to you, but it's very simple. The kingdom after Solomon split into two camps. You had Israel, the northern kingdom, and you had Judah, the southern kingdom, 10 tribes north, two tribes south. So Asa is the king over Judah, two tribes south, and Ahab, the son of Omri, is the king over Israel, ten tribes north. Listen to verse 30. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, by the way, the sins of Jeroboam were idolatry, he took for his wife, now this shouldn't be a familiar name to you, again, you might be thinking, this is Mother's Day, Court, don't do this, Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Oh, she's a Sidonian princess. And went and served Baal and worshiped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah, 
This is a massive idolatry or idol temple. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, listen to this, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of, the son, of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by the son, or Joshua, the son of Nun. Now, I'm going to explain that briefly, but in this moment here in Israel's history, we see Jezebel is married into the kingly line of Israel. Jezebel is a Sidonian princess. Remember, where Jesus is right now in our passage, this woman is a Sidonian princess, and she provokes Ahab the king to lead Israel into a kind of idol worship that the nation had never seen before. So much so that Ahab reigned over the rebuilding of the ancient pagan city of Jericho. Now, you remember Jericho. That's where they marched around it seven times and shouted, and all the walls came down, and the entirety of the city was destroyed, and they salted the earth where it was, and Joshua, the son of Nun, said, if anyone rebuilds this city, he will rebuild it at the cost of his firstborn child. So, Joshua vows this, and Ahab and Jezebel basically say, terms accepted. And what do they do? They choose to rebuild the city, and child sacrifice is its dedication point. They do actually. The man who builds the city kills his kids in order to dedicate the city. This is the kind of idolatry that was happening in Israel. Now, there are a lot of examples in the Old Testament for me to give. Trust me, I mean sufficient to talk about Tyre and Sidon. If you want to, you can go home, you can read Ezekiel and the prophecies against Tyre, many of which, and one in particular, many theologians believe that the prince of Tyre can also be seen prophetically as a prophecy about Satan himself. It's one of those passages that a lot of people use that it's describing Satan, even though it's a prophecy against an actual city. But it's sufficient for me to say this simple line, the Canaanite people of Tyre and Sidon are the sworn enemies of Israel. We have to see this. They are haters of the God of Israel. They are infamous for their spiritual darkness. They constantly, constantly nipped at the heels of the Israelites and desired to turn them after other gods. They not only hated Israel's God, but hated the Israelites themselves. So Jesus's use of the word dog would have been a common use of the day. And it would have been common use to describe the antipathy that Israelites had for Canaanite people. And it was based on history, okay? We do this all of the time. It's just acceptable to us. The most acceptable example that I can give is when you use the word Nazi. When you use the word Nazi, you can throw it around pejoratively at anyone who really gets under your skin, who really is just this is a word that we use to say that's who you are to me, right? It's a pejorative that's used commonly, even if, even if it shouldn't be. Now, what Jesus means because of the context is the dogs would have been the people that are outside of the covenant, the people who are constantly surrounding the covenant people in packs seeking to destroy them. I want to read to you Psalm 22. This is a famous passage from David, King David, and it's a prophetic passage. Jesus quotes this passage from the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 starts out this way. Now listen to what David says here in Psalm 22. For dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. 
they stare and they gloat over me. Now, we know that this is a prophecy about those who would surround the cross after they pierced Christ, but David's saying it of the people that surrounded him, the enemies of God, as he is at war with them. But either way, it's still the same meaning, and that is that dogs were used to describe the people who sought to destroy the people of God. Paul later turns this epithet on its head because it was always used for the Jews against Gentiles. But watch what Paul does in Philippians chapter three. He's talking to a Gentile people and he says, look out for the dogs. Wait a minute, aren't the Philippians the dogs? Well, Paul now armed with the gospel, the the preacher to the Gentiles, he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's talking about the circumcision party. He's talking about the Jews now. This would have been a turning of the tables. And so when we see this about the dogs, we need to know that Jesus is doing something larger in the passage. There's more than meets the eye here. He responds to this woman and her pleas to the exorcism of the demon of her daughter in a manner that is consistent with his call from the father, namely that he was called to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And it's not proper for him then to feed the bread that was meant for the covenant people to those who are outside the covenant people. That's what he's saying. So is what Jesus is saying true on the basis of everything I just laid out to you? Hopefully that you can catch, even though it's offensive, it's true. Now the second piece we have to ask is, but what are his motivations? Is he saying true things just in order to drive this woman away, further away from God? Because at first glance, you might think that he's sending her away, right? Well, let's get deeper into it. I think there's more than meets the eye. Jesus knows something about this woman. As he does all of us, the book of John records that Jesus needed no one to testify to him about what was in man because he knew man. He knows her heart. It's why he ministers to the woman at the well and tells her about her past. It's why Jesus speaks to Zacchaeus and tells, talks to him about his defrauding. It's why he walks up to Nathaniel at the fig tree and says, I saw, or, I saw you when you were under the fig tree, rather. He knows this woman. I'm convinced Jesus knows that she's sincere in her approach. He knows that she's a mother in desperation. And the disciples in Matthew and in the the book of Mark want to get her away, send her away. Instead, he engages with her. I think Jesus engages with her, and I'm very confident of this, because he fully intends to heal her daughter. But he has to have a talk first. This talk is both for her and for the disciples. He speaks to the Canaanite woman a people that were constantly used to test the children of Israel's faith, a test they failed over and over again, and he upends this and turns it on its head, and now he tests her faith by saying, why should I give you the bread of the children? Will she turn and go? Will she be scandalized? Will she be offended? No, instead, the woman responds in great wisdom and in great faith. I want want you to read to you her response, and I want to read Judges chapter 1. He said to her, let the children be fed first. This is verse 27. For it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. In the book of Matthew, it's recorded, she said, yes, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. Now there's a wisdom in this woman. She she knows who Jesus is and she's not gonna be deterred by her offense. But there's more than this. This is an actual quote. And most people don't know that she's quoting something. She's alluding back to a passage, a Hebrew passage. In the book of Judges, the book of Judges starts 
differently than the rest of the book goes. The entirety of the book of Judges is about Israel's faithlessness, adopting the gods of the Canaanite peoples, the peoples around them. They fall into slavery to those people. God raises up a redeemer and then brings them back out, and they constantly fulfill this cycle for hundreds of years. But Judges starts, the first chapter, with them actually being obedient and driving out some, not all, some of the Canaanite peoples. Now, I want to read to you one of those passages as they begin the process of driving out the Canaanites. This is Judges chapter 1. I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. After the death of Joshua, most people think they just really screwed up after this, and they did, except for this chapter. The people of Israel inquired of the Lord, who shall go up for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up. That should perk yours up. Behold, I've given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon, his brother, come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. And so Simeon went with him and Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand and they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. And they found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled. This is a king, by the way, Adonai Bezek. But they pursued him and they caught him, listen to this, and they cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, this king says, 70 kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off, used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. This Canaanite king had, kill, had not killed 70 kings, but he had destroyed their nations and enslaved them. And then he had taken the kings and he had cut their thumbs and their big toes off. And every time the king would get together for supper, he made them crawl around under the table to pick up the crumbs for food. And Judah and Simeon come and they say, the Lord's given this nation into our hands and they destroy this king. And he says, even as I have done, so has the Lord done to me. This is just. And then he lives the rest of his life with his thumbs and big toes cut off in Jerusalem at the palace. Now, I think something's happening here with this Canaanite woman that if we're not careful, we just think it's a, it's a desperation move on her behalf. And, and hear me, it is desperate, the situation that she's in. But this woman knows what she's talking about. This woman knows who she's talking to. She knows that Jesus is the king of kings, that his way is a way of mercy. She seems to be saying something like this, I know who you are, son of Judah. <laughs> Remember, who shall go for us, Lord, to, to defeat the Canaanites? Send Judah. He will be the one. She knows that this is the king of Judah here. And then she says, I would that you would permit me but to eat scraps under your table rather than you send me away. That's what she's saying. I know what is just. I know who you are and I know who I am, but I also know that you will extend mercy. She knows that he knows the sins of her people. She knows her station. She knows that she's completely at his mercy, but she also knows that he is inclined to extend that mercy. Justice would have been to send her away empty-handed and for her daughter to live a life of torment, but she knows that she's not dealing with an earthly king. She's dealing with the king of kings. She's not dealing with the man who out of justice cuts the thumbs off and the big toes off and makes people just crawl around because that's what they deserve. She's dealing with the king who gives you a seat at the table. 
And so she pleads. Now, what does it mean for us? Well, a few things. And I do want to point out some of the motherhood themes here. But first, to follow King Jesus, this passage seems to be saying we have to know our station. And in order to know our station, we have to get beyond offense. Because it will be offensive for us to be told what our station is. We are not owed mercy. We have no bargaining chips with the Lord. We are not, we are not able to negotiate with him on the basis of our own merits. We cannot make ourselves alive again. We cannot cause our deaf ears to hear. We cannot cause our blind eyes to see. We cannot heal our own sicknesses. We cannot cast out our own demons. We need the king to do this. And our station is at his mercy. Like this woman knew full well who she was, we also must know our station. Number two, to follow the king, we must know his station. She knows that Christ is not just merely a Galilean man who's hiding away in Tyre and Sidon. He's a king. He's the king. Christ is not unable. He is able to do abundantly beyond what you could ever ask or think. His power is not thwarted. We see that in this passage. He just says it's done, and the little girl is healed of her demonization. The spirits are subject to him. He is truly the king who reigns, And we cannot doubt it. And then lastly, number three, but perhaps most important, to follow the king is to know his heart. Not just our station, not just his station, but to know the heart of the king. He is not merely able, but his desire is to extend mercy to you even now. That's what Christ desires in this case, even when the disciples don't desire it. He desires to extend mercy to this woman. Christ is eager to lavish grace upon us, and when we come humbly before him, we can ask, the Bible says, whatever we wish when we come in his name. When we approach the throne of God on the basis of Christ's merits, we are not heard begrudgingly, but we are received openly and freely. Listen to me. One of the greatest gifts you've been given as a child of God is prayer. Seek and ask and knock and continue and be persistent. Why? Because you're a child of God. But this is a mother after all, and this is for the moms who thought I was going to go awry here. Aha, I'm not. This mother gives us an example of great virtue from a place you wouldn't have expected it from. From the Canaanite peoples comes this woman who exhibits the virtues of a mother. First, she, she exhibits the virtue of undeterred love that a mother has for her child. When God created us male and female, I'm convinced the identity of motherhood and fatherhood was sown within us even long before we were ever mothers and fathers. I say this because Eve was named before she ever had a child, and Eve means the mother of all the living. The Canaanite woman comes before the king on behalf of her daughter and pleads with Jesus, heal her. It reminds me of Queen Esther who comes before a king and gives her own life into this king's hands and pleads on behalf of Israel, the people that are about to be destroyed. Mothers who come before the king and plead on behalf of their children are mothers who live in light of their created design. That you would plead before God that your child would have life and flourish, and that's what this woman does. Secondarily, the uncanny wisdom of a mother that's exhibited from this woman who is an outsider. She wouldn't have been considered. She's called a dog, but she acts like a queen, doesn't she? She acts more royal. 
It reminds us of the matriarch Deborah, who's referred to as the mother of Israel. And during a time of great idolatry, great apostasy, the children of Israel seek her out and they seek her wisdom in this time of crisis. This woman exhibits the knowledge and the wisdom of the history of the people of God. She's quoting Judges 1 to the Lord Jesus and she's a Canaanite woman. She doesn't approach Jesus with arrogance. She approaches Jesus with reverence. Mothers, seek to model the wisdom of Christ in your life. It is a blessing to everyone around you Everyone suffers when a mother is not, when, when a mother is absent and when a mother is not a, a fountain of wisdom like this woman is here. And then lastly, we see the humility and the adoration of a mother who worships Christ. This reminds me of Mary who sits before the feet of Jesus and chooses the good portion. This Canaanite woman throws herself at the feet of Jesus and calls him master. She's not ashamed to do so. She is not too proud in this moment to look like she's debasing herself in front of the disciples. She knows who he is. And then, of course, the famous chapter in the Bible speaking of a woman of godly character. This is Proverbs 31.30. Listen to what this says from Solomon. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That's what you see here. This woman's not worried about how she appears, even to the disciples or to her neighbors, but she knows who she's talking to. She fears the Lord. And so this morning, mothers, I pray that you would choose the good portion. You would find your place at the feet of the Lord Jesus, not only for yourself, but for the good of your whole family. There is no greater act that you can take as a mother than to be a worshiper of the Lord your God. It's the greatest thing that you can do to lead by example in this way. Now, I want to close with this. This passage teaches us the heart of God, the heart of our king who has all the authority, is to extend mercy to the nations. Remember, this entire passage is centered around the house of Israel, the ones I'm going to. I'm not talking to you. And now we see that the very comment made was so that the disciples would know, actually, that is his intent. We see this now in hindsight, 2020, because Paul tells us he's the disciple, the apostle to the Gentiles, and God expects all the nations to hear the gospel. The disciples would not have known this at this time, but here's how he tells them. He has this interaction with the Canaanite woman, the great enemy. And what does he do? He heals her. Now, I wish I had more time. There's many more parallels in this passage. Just as a challenge, go back and why is it that the king in Judges 1 has 70 kings that he puts underneath his table? What does that remind you of? Did Jesus not send out 70? The table of nations in Genesis 11, were they not 70 nations? There's much to be said about this passage. This is something unique. He's communicating to the disciples, but I want you to hear this. It's one thing for us to hear it theologically, and it's another thing for us to apply it personally. And here's what I mean by that. When I say Jesus desires to disciple the nations, you say amen. When I say Jesus desires to extend mercy to any kind of people, no matter who they are or what they've done, you say amen. When I say that is you, or it may be the person who is your direct enemy that he wants to apply this kind of mercy to, you say, wait a minute. Because the old infamous quote from Joseph Stalin is something like, if I kill one person, it's a travesty. If I kill a million, it's a statistic. 
what he knew, what he meant by this is if it's massive, if it's big, then people ignore it. But if I bring it down to the personal and I say it's your sibling, then you start saying, well, that's a travesty. It's similar in the way that we apply the gospel. When you realize that you've been forgiven or that God desires to forgive the person in your life that you deemed unforgivable to bring them into the fold, to make them a child of God, then it becomes more difficult. But hear me on this. We have to see ourselves as the Canaanite woman, not as the disciples. If you can see yourself as the Canaanite woman here or even as the daughter with demon oppression, then you can extend the mercy. Or as Jesus told Peter, he who is forgiven much forgives much. That just as this woman had no negotiating power before the king, he extended mercy to her instead. Rather than punishing us for treason, rather than sending us beneath the table eternally to just gather crumbs in humiliation, instead, the Lord Jesus made a seat at the table for you and me by dying, by bleeding for us, by being pierced. To sit at the king's table and to be called his very sons, his very daughters, to join the ranks of his own army, to battle against the evil principalities and powers of this present darkness. The question that we all have, and we have it always, is will we receive his invitation? Will we take him up on his offer of mercy and sit at his table? You know why I say it's every week? Because that's what the Lord's table is. It's a table of peace that he's made for us. You're at peace with the king. You get to sit. And so this morning, my prayer is that you would take that seat gladly and full of joy and full of honor because that's what's been bestowed upon you by Christ. And if, if perhaps you have never received that great gift, I pray that you would not go on continually scrambling around under the table when he's invited you to take a seat. Let me pray for us. Father, on this Mother's Day, I do pray for all the moms in the room that you might bless them, pour out your spirit on them, that they might exhibit the kind of virtue and character that you would have them. Holy Spirit, we do pray that we would receive this invitation from you. We would not be afraid or ashamed to debase ourselves and recognize like this woman, we too have nothing to offer. And yet you've received us. And so now I do pray that as we take of your supper, that you might fill us. As we humble ourselves, we pray that we would experience exaltation from you. As we kneel at your throne, we pray that you'd bring us back up to be seated with you. Bring us the joy and satisfaction that comes from the gospel. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.